Back when William Shakespeare's company of players were a hot ticket in London, there was no such thing as a director. Today, it's hard to imagine producing any play without the guiding hand of a director to tell the story. Shakespeare's work offers lots of unique challenges for actors and for audiences. The plays are written in early modern English, which can be difficult to decipher, especially to those that are new to Shakespeare. They contain lots of references and jokes that audience and actors today may not understand. We're here today to explore the role of the director in a Shakespeare play. How does the director, absent in Shakespeare's time, serve today to help tell these timeless tales? From Michigan State University's Department of Theater, I'm Derek McNish, Assistant Professor and Director of the BFA Actor Training Program. This is Syllable of Recorded Time, where we put Shakespeare in context for today's audiences. This season, MSU is producing Twelfth Night, which runs from November 8th to November 17th, 2019. We also just completed a workshop production of The Winter's Tale at MSU's Abrams Planetarium and at Michigan High Schools. Let me introduce our host today, Heidi Covinia. I'm Heidi Covinia, um, an actor in the BFA Actor Training Program, and I played the roles of Paulina and Dorcas in The Winter's Tale. We are here today with Gus Kaikonen, director of MSU's production of Twelfth Night. To describe his accomplishments would take much more time than we have. Mr. Kaikonen is an accomplished actor, director, designer, and playwright. He made his Broadway acting debut in the original cast of Equus. Other New York credits include Tommy Toon's Cloud Nine and The Country Girl with Hal Holbrook. He has acted in several shows at the Mint Theater, on television, he co-starred in the PBS production of Paul's Case, and he appeared on Law & Order, SVU, and Criminal Intent, and has had continuing roles on ABC's All My Children and One Life to Live. He has performed at many of North America's finest theaters, such as Long Wharf, Folger, Goodman, and Aslo. His directing credits include the New York production of Hinda Wakes, nominated for the 2018 Drama Desk Award and the Off-Broadway Alliance Award. His direction won the Best of Festival Award at the New York's United Solo Festival. He won two New Hampshire Theater Awards for direction. He, he directed his own translations and several New York premieres at The Mint, The Pearl, Playhouse 91, Riverside Shakespeare, and others. He has directed at esteemed theaters all over the United States, such as Goodspeed and Ford's Theater. He is an 11-time winner of the New, York, New Hampshire Theater Award for Best Director. Since 1996, Mr. Kaikonen has been the artistic director at the Peterborough Players, a professional theater in Peterborough, New Hampshire, there, he has directed over 60 plays. He performed as Leontes in The Winter's Tale at Peterborough Players and Lost Nation Theater. Gus, welcome. Thank you. May I call you Gus? You may. Okay. Um, thank you for joining us. Um, you're currently a guest artist at Michigan State University, directing Twelfth Night, which opens November 8, 2019. You're teaching a classical acting class while here, which I'm in. As someone that has um, an impress impressive professional resume, someone that has worked with very experienced actors, can you start by telling us 
what it's like to work on Shakespeare with students that are new to Shakespeare? Well, first of all, I'm going to say that um, I'm really impressed by the um, talent that I'm working with here at Michigan State. I don't know who's recruiting the acting talent for both the undergrad and the grad program, but um, you've got a lot of extraordinarily talented people here, um, some of whom are new to Shakespeare and some of whom are not. Um, Shakespeare is, uh, the, the, one of the hardest things to do when directing Shakespeare is to convince the actors that they are doing a play like any other play and that they need to bring their acting minds and emotions to it um, the same way they would to a modern play and speak much the same way they would in a modern play, except that Shakespeare gives us lots of help in that the much of the play is written in iambic pentameter, so there's a rhythm to things. Uh, and I tend to use in Shakespeare the first folios because I believe Patrick Tucker, who's the man who taught me this technique, that there are lots of cues for directing and acting in the folios the way they are printed, which get edited out when a modern editor um, puts out his own edition or her own edition of the, of the play. So if we go back to the original text, which Shakespeare's company collected and had printed, we have lots of cues for emphasis, um, action, written into the punctuation and the spelling and the capitalization, et cetera. And I've, I have found that very, very useful in my own, even when, uh, when, the comp when I'm an actor in a Shakespeare play, I go back to the folio, whether the company is using it or not, for direction from the original source. Um, so when you, whether you're working with professionals or students, it may be their first time in a Shakespeare play, you know? So you're, you're, you're using the same tech. I use the same techniques with professionals as I do with students. Um, what would you say um, is the role of a Shakespeare director today? Do you feel um, it is your primary job when direct, or what do you feel is your primary job when directing Shakespeare? Uh, or just directing, mm -hmm. is to make the audience um, respond to the material in a personal way. My, I have what I call the brother-in-law theory. If somebody on that stage reminds you of your brother-in-law, then you get emotionally, or your mother, or your father, or your child, or your grandmother, or your neighbor, you get emotionally hooked into the play, and you say, oh my God, he's just like my brother. Um, and once you are emotionally hooked into the play that way, you can't get off the hook. But if you're watching behavior that you've never seen in life on stage, then you, there is no emotional hook, and you can't you, you don't care about the play. So you're, the most important thing is to encourage the actors to put recognizable behavior, behavior they've experienced in their own lives on the stage so that the audience will respond naturally and emotionally to what's happening there. Um, the great thing about Shakespeare is he is a playwright you can trust. If Shakespeare wrote it, it is actual human behavior. Your job is to find your way into that behavior and figure out what the text is telling you about that behavior so that you can mine it and the audience can relate to it. Did I answer your question? Yes. <laughs> um, but I, I want to know what your first step is when um, directing a Shakespeare play. Uh, again, I, I, I treat Shakespeare the same as I treat other plays, but my, mm, I, I like to start around a table. Mm -hmm. 
So that the first step is that the act, well, the first step is casting the play. <laughs> Ralph Richardson was once asked, um, how do you prepare for a play? And he said, first I say yes, and then I learn my lines. <laughs> um, I like to stay around a table um, for a quarter of the rehearsal period until everybody around that table understand and keep the whole cast around the table so that everybody understands their part in the play and uh, and how their part fits into what everybody else is doing and so that everyone when we when we talk about technique or something everybody in the cast gets the same information at the same time um once i i, I once took a seminar uh, that was sponsored by the directors union with alia kazan who is you know was he had political problems, but he was perhaps the finest director of the 20th century. And um, I asked him, I said, I, I have a, I'm going into rehearsal, which I was, with a 10-character, three-act play. Could you schedule my rehearsals for me? And I w had been a director that used to think, oh, we don't even need to read this play. Let's just get up, up on our feet and start experiencing it. So I was very surprised when he said, keep the actors around a table as long as you possibly can keep them around the table till they can't stand it anymore. That doesn't mean you're just reading through the play. Have the play become fully acted around that table. They may move around the table, but keep the table as the center of the focus so they're not worried about where the audience is or what their blocking is or, or how they're moving their bodies. Because once the actors are fully into the play, maybe it will take a week, he said, um, they will get up and they will block the play for you. And you won't spend the entire rehearsal period fixing the blocking. Well, this completely terrified me, but I had great respect for Mr. Kazan. So the next time I got a bunch of actors around a table, which was coming up, the production I had asked him about, I, I, uh, I sat around the table, and I sat around the table the next day, and I sat around the table the next day. My problem was I didn't know how to do table work. So by the third day, the actors were sort of looking at me like, are we ever going to get up? Because I hadn't explained to them that this wasn't about reading the play again and again and again. It was about finding the play around that table so that it was fully acted emotionally around the table so that when they were released from the table, they, um, they moved the way their characters would move because they were full of their characters by that time. So now I, so then I developed a technique. So then I developed the technique of staying around the table and then having the actors, putting extra chairs around the table so the actors could move around the table and sit next to a different person and work through the play that way. And then one day the actors come in and it's just the chairs and the table is gone. And I say, all right, now we're still doing table work. You are to get up and do the whole play now. I won't interrupt you. I just want to see the whole play in the center of that you enter when you stand up from your chair, and when you exit, you sit back in your chair. So you don't have to think about where is the kitchen, where is the bathroom, where is the front door. All you have to think about is I'm entering now, and I'm standing up from my chair, and when I finish talking, I sit down in my chair. And it is amazing how much I learn just watching them because what you're trying to do is not find the best viola. You're trying to find Heidi's best viola because what will make the play unique is the fact that Heidi is playing viola and that will make it different from any other production of Twelfth Night. Um, so watching my cast move around in that circle, I see who they are going to be and try to encourage those things 
in those characters. And then we go on and block the play. And I, before I was using this technique, I used to get into trouble. This is the trouble. I remember directing Love's Labor's Lost once. And uh, we got to the, to the dress rehearsal, and suddenly it all came together. And I realized what the play was about, which is about a bunch of guys who are immature and a bunch of women who are more mature. And the guys are in love with the women, and the women may be in love with the men. But by the end of the play, they've had it with those men because the men are very immature. And this happens in life, in my experience. Um, and so, and then a tragedy occurs, and the women have to leave. And the men are like, but, but you can't leave. You have to make a commitment. And the women say to what I just spent the last couple hours experiencing, I can't make a commitment to that. If you want to prove yourself to me, go off and do penance. All right. So I didn't real I honestly didn't realize that that was the play was that that was what the play was about until dress rehearsal. And then I had to sit the cast down and say, wait, 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 all these choices we made are, are, are wrong now because this is what the play is about. And the cast looked at me like I was a very smelly fish. <laughs> and I didn't want to, because I'm asking them to change things at dress rehearsal. That problem does not happen anymore when you've done the table work because you figure out what the play is about before you get up on your feet. So That's really I think interesting. I, yeah. I probably strayed from your question. No, somehow. no, you're good. All of that was really interesting. I've never heard of that before or done that. But um, How would you characterize yourself as a director then? Um, after hearing that, are you more traditional, modern, interpretive? Like, How would you classify yourself? I um, the, the privilege of, of working in the theater is you get to wander around in a genius or a great person head for the entire period of your process through both rehearsals and performances. You're inside somebody who, who I hope you respect's head, like Shakespeare or Moliere or Lucas Hanath. I just did a Doll's House Part Two as an actor, and I was like very impressed by the inside of that man's head. Um, so what you're trying to do, what you really honestly want to try to do is what figure out what they're talking about and present that on stage. Now, you can do that in any variety of periods, in any variety of styles, but you have to stay true to what the play is about. And when you start changing what the play is about, then I think you should be doing some other play. You know, If you don't like what the play is about, don't do that play. So that, that's my only... Um, so I'm, I, I don't know if you would call me a traditionalist or because I've done some wacky and wild things set in, you know, but, but you learn if, as you're working with, with especially older professional actors and you approach somebody and say, I would really love you to play this part. And someone's, I'm thinking of Roberta Maxwell because she actually said this to me. She said, Gus, I would love to work with you again and I would love to do that part assure me that my costume is not going to be made out of mylar and we are not going to be on the moon. And I said, no, no, we're going to be where the play says we are and your costume is going to be in the period of the play. All right, then, let's go. You know? <laughs> so um, I have done shows in which the costumes are made of mylar, but it had to fit the, you know, the playwright usually wrote, they're wearing mylar. 
Um, <laughs> for 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 um, the Twelfth Night that we're doing now, I've done. I think I've done. I've done Twelfth Night in Modern Dress. I've done, and of course, the first time I did Twelfth Night was in the 1970s, so Modern Dress was very, well, actually, we're getting right back to, people are wearing the same clothes that they were wearing in the 70s now, again. I, kids walk into the rehearsals, and I'm like, oh, my God, that's exactly how I dressed in 1972. Um, so I guess that would be Modern Dress still. I've done uh, Twelfth Night in, in very period dress. I haven't ever done it Elizabethan. I've done it in 1920s. I've done it, and we're doing this one, as the costume designer said to me, it's somewhere between 1790 and 1830, you know, because we're using a lot of stock from what Michigan State has. Beautiful costumes, but um, uh, I, I, all I asked for in terms of the period was something in which the male and the female silhouette are very different um, because that helps with Twelfth Night, I think, and that's, and we're writing about Shakespeare's writing about disguise and and gender and um, so and then I said and what what where 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 is you since we're going to since our budget will allow us to do nice costumes but much from stock I don't know the stock at Michigan State where do you have really you know where are you strong in your stock and they said uh, late Victorian and early nineteenth century I said well which would you prefer and. I think the designer actually said, let's do an early 19th century. And I was like, great, let's go. And the other thing about, you have to think about weapons. I've done, you know, when you're in modern period, I've done Twelfth Night with boxing gloves. But there are fights in Twelfth Night where, you know, and you, you, the fights have to happen. So are you going to be doing sword fights? If you're going to be doing sword fights, you have to be in a period where people wear swords because these people are out on the street. They're not like, they're not like at a fencing competition. They're on the street. So... Um, early 19th century works really well because men are still wearing swords. If it's all right, I'd like to start talking about The Winter's Tale. Sure. Yeah. Um, so we asked our previous guests on this podcast this question, and I wanted to ask you as well, what do you think audiences should know before reading or seeing The Winter's Tale? I don't think they should know anything. I think <laughs> I think The Winter's Tale... The, the most amazing thing about The Winter's Tale is it is this preposterous story which works completely emotionally. And when you sit and watch it, I always have the same experience, which is I cannot believe this is working as well as it's working. It is a huge fairy tale. It's Shakespeare at the end of his life writing extraordinarily beautifully. He is using the pentameter so exquisitely to suggest emotional upset, mental breakdown. Um, constantly in The Winter's Tale, the thought ends in the middle of the line. And, and therefore the character, like Leontes, sounds very, very disjointed. Um, whereas a character like Paulina, usually her thought does not end in the middle line because she's very much in control. Um, it, his technique got more and more and more skillful in terms of uh, being using pentameter to get deep into someone's psychology. Um, I, don't, I don't know if people know what pentameter is. It's simply five IMs in a row. Da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da. And, and so Shakespeare sets up this rhythm, which should be subliminal. The audience should not be aware of it, but the actor has this rhythm to use, which makes the actor very, very powerful if, if he knows how to use it. Um, uh, it's part of what 
our class is about. Mm -hmm. um, and I, 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 it's such a thrilling feeling to be an actor and be on the pentameter because the audience doesn't hear the poetry, but you, it feels like I used to ski a lot when I was younger, and it, it's the same feeling as like as coming over a crest and falling and then going down a really steep incline because you're on top of that poetry and it's carrying you along. And if you're not using it, if you're, if you're fighting the pentameter, you always feel like you're pushing this boulder uphill. Whereas if you, if you get really skilled at using the, the verse, you're just gliding downhill on an on a, on a amazing toboggan and it's taking you, you don't know where you're going to end up. It's, it's a thrilling experience, I think. Um, so... Uh, your winter's tale. What was your question? <laughs> um, well, you were talking about the pentameter, so now I'm interested um, if you had any tips for people who haven't done Shakespeare before and, or just some things they should know about um, what we call the hidden gems in Shakespeare. Uh, um, well, it's hard to talk about pentameter because I, I, you know, because people don't when you're first working with the cast, even of professionals or students, and you start talking about the pentameter, they're all looking at you like, <laughs> what are you talking about? Because American actors are used to sense memory and um, uh, you know, acting on their feelings. And that's very important in Shakespeare, except that you also have this structure which you can use to support you in that. Because when you're acting, you should not be thinking about pentameter. But when you're rehearsing, and preparing, you should be thinking about pentameter um, because it will help you enormously. Um, I don't... So, so uh, maybe I should demonstrate. I don't know. You it, could. Uh, so, uh, if I say uh, I, I don't, I'm going to do this off the top of my head. I hope I get <laughs> I get some of it right. Um, so, from Hamlet, there's a soliloquy. Oh, what a rogue and peasant slave am I? So, you would often hear an actor say, "Oh." What a rogue and peasant slave am I. Is it not monstrous that this player here, but in a fiction, in a dream of passion, could force his soul so... Okay, so uh, you're just not interested, right? I mean, it's, it's too long, it's too... But that sounds like Shakespeare, the way most people do it. But if you use the pentameter, you're in this world. Oh, what a rogue and peasant slave am I. Is it not monstrous that this player here, but in a fiction, in a dream of passion, could force his soul so to his own... And you're listening, because the pentameter breaks it up into little chunks that I can understand, and it sets up a, a rhythm. like it's, it's like rap. <laughs> it sets up the same rhythm as rap music, it, and it carries you into the... It, it, it just catches your interest. It's a, it's a really beautiful um, thing that, that, that Shakespeare provides to us. And, you know, they think, the first folio people, the people who really believe in first folio, th at any given time, Shakespeare's company at the Globe had, now I'm going to get some of these numbers wrong, so forgive me if I'm not exactly right, but had 36 plays in rep. All right, so they were doing a and they were performing in the afternoon because there wasn't light enough to perform in the evening, um, and in the morning they would sort of get ready to do whatever play they were doing. So thirty six plays in rep. When were they rehearsing? There's like hardly any evidence that there were m m many rehearsals, um, and these plays were playing. So you would be doing Hamlet on a Tuesday one day, 
and then maybe a week from then on a Friday, and then maybe two weeks from them on a Sunday. And how did, or not, probably not Sunday, but um, how, how, do, how do you, um, how do they keep these plays in, in shape? Well, the first folio people, I don't know if I agree, but they think that they were, they had little scrolls that had all their lines on them, just their lines, that they could manipulate with their hands and read their lines off the scrolls. So written into their lines, which words were capitalized, the pentameter, how the punctuation worked, were all the acting cues they needed to remember how to do this play, which they hadn't done in 10 days, and which they were doing in rep with 36 other plays. And every two weeks, they were adding a new play to the rep, too. So, And they only had, in order to make them, the, in order to keep the plays from being widely dispersed, because there were no copyright laws, so if a rival company got a copy of Hamlet, then they could just do Hamlet and didn't have to pay any royalties to Shakespeare. They, they didn't print copies of the plays. They didn't want copies of the plays printed, and they didn't want the actors to have full scripts, because then if you had the full script of Hamlet, you could say, I quit, and go over to the other company and say, here's the script of Hamlet. I want to play Hamlet, because Hamlet's a big hit over there, and if you, here's the script. So... They would give the actors just cue scripts. So they had like the three words before their line and then their speech, which they could manipulate like, a, like, a, like on television, those, those things when you're on the soaps that are playing and you can read your lines off them if you must. Or on Saturday Night Live, you, you will see the actors looking to one side and they're literally reading their lines off the, off the teleprompter. Or they used to have cards. Um, but... So the, and there are lots of woodcuts of actors with these scrolls in their hands on stage in places. So if you're reading your lines off your hands, you know, off a thing in your hands, then you can manage to do 30, because it's like a bunch of stage readings. We all know you can do a stage reading in two hours of rehearsal, right? Because <laughs> we do them all the time. Um, I, I, I start talking and I forget what you <laughs> asked me. Um. It's okay. We can move on to another question because I want to go back to the Winter's Tale. Um, I love the Winter's Tale. I I, I was a, a friend of mine. Well, he's a friend now. Um, I didn't know him really very well, but I got a call saying uh, we're doing a big Shakespeare festival, and we already have a director to direct um, a history, and we have a director to direct a tragedy, and we have a director to direct a comedy, and um, I'm wondering if you'll direct one of the problem plays. Now, this always irks me because I don't think there are problem plays in Shakespeare. I think there are. And um, I said, well, what do you mean by problem play? And he said, oh, you know what I'm talking about. And I said, I know what you're referring to. I said, but for instance, The Winter's Tale is one of my favorite plays. Literally, this is the voice on the other end. He went, you're on. And that was, and so I got to direct The Winter's Tale, which, you know, which, as I say, it just works. It's half tragedy, half comedy. It, it goes from tragedy to comedy in the middle of the play, abruptly, and, and it leaves the audience in a puddle at the end, you know? Just so happy. Shakespeare is all about, Shakespeare lost his son. Uh, he had three children, uh, a set of twins, a boy and a girl, and, and a girl. And his son died in I think 1596. And after that, he started writing all these plays about people coming back to life. For instance, in Twelfth Night, there is a set of fraternal twins. And the boy, 
is thought to be drowned and comes back to life. I swear, you know, we're lucky as artists that we get to use all the terrible things that happen to us in our lives for positive reasons. Um, and we can turn them into, you know, a beautiful scene on stage or the memory of something that's happened to us that seemed awful at the time. And, and if you're a real actor, I have to admit that when something horrible happens to me, sometimes in the back of my head I'm thinking, how am I going to use this in the future? <laughs> Which is, you know, it makes the experience of your own life not so authentic, but it makes you really authentic on the stage. Um, but uh, uh, so Shakespeare is in the habit of writing people back to life, and he does that in The Winter's Tale in an extraordinary way. Um, you know, it's really a, a play about uh, a dysfunctional marriage, a dysfunctional man, a, a battered wife, um, and and she goes into a, a safe house, you know, telling, I mean, he's the king, so you can't get a restraining order against him, but you can just say she's dead, and uh, and then he can't get to her. And then she is restored to him, what is it, 15 years later? 16. 16 years later, yeah. And his daughter, who's assumed to be dead, who is lost, um, is restored to him as well. And after 16 years of penance, he's actually become someone who deserves to have this wife and this daughter. So uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a beautiful, beautiful play. Um, yeah. Um, so during our production of A Winter's Tale, we loved performing the comedy at the end of Act 3 and throughout Act 4. Um, so the, the child Mamilius dies, um, lives as ruined. There's a terrible storm. Um, a man gets eaten by a bear and then clowns him. It was almost a relief for us, for the audience, to get into that comedy. Can you tell us a little bit about how characters like Leontes and Paulina can live in the same world as characters like Autolycus and the shepherd and his son? What was Shakespeare doing there? Shakespeare's and combining his own life. Shakespeare lived in Stratford, mm -hmm. which was, you know, his father was a glover and also the mayor of the town. But um, sheep-shearing festivals and all the uh, bucolic elements of Stratford and farm country, he knew very, very well. And he also knew the court. Uh, his, his, his company was sponsored by aristocrats and by the queen and the king. And um, so he could combine both worlds into one play in a really loving way. Um, and then bring them, and then through the countryside, I, you know, I imagine after dealing with London and the courts and everything, he would go back to Stratford, not very often, but occasionally, and just try to re regroup, recoup, like we all do. You know, it's like, oh, I need two weeks vacation. Um, of course, he had to go back to his family, which was not an easy family, but um, um, I think he's writing about that. He's writing about the healing quality of um, the countryside. I mean, Perdita is raised by l shepherds, and raised lovingly by shepherds. The, the, the shepherd, I, I love that character. The, the, there's a character sometimes called the young shepherd, but in the folio, he's just called Clown. You know, it's like old shepherd and his son, Clown. <laughs> and it's because Shakespeare's writing for his company. 
And I don't know if you wrote it for Will Kemp or one of the other clowns, but he was writing that, that character for a specific guy who can do a specific thing really well and yet make him a human being. And, um, and that, that shepherd and clown who uh, raise Perdita um, are very highly rewarded at the end of the play. Um, so it, it's, it, isn't, it isn't a stretch to say that both of these worlds exist in reality. It's just they're very, very different. And the contrast is um, something he's doing very purposefully to, um, to, make his, to make his point. Sometimes the, um, and it's a, it's a, it can be a, a shocking point. It can be a political point that sometimes the low lives have better lives than the high lives, you know? Hmm. Okay, so I have a funny question for you. I want to know, um, when you directed The Winter's Tale, how did you handle the exit pursued by Bear stage direction? We did, um, okay. I have seen the bear done so many different ways, and I've seen the bear fail so many different times. Um, the first time, Winter's Tale taught me a huge lesson. The first time I, I have to remember what you asked. I'll get there. <laughs> the first time I saw Winter's Tale was in an, a Royal Shakespeare production in 1970 with Judy Dench playing both Hermione and Perdita. And they did that by using a double at the end of the play who wore a Judy Dench mask and cutting Perdita's last couple lines. Um, she was wonderful. The bear, which was this enormous puppet that must have been like 11, 12, 20 feet tall that rose up in my memory, rose up out of the stage, um, didn't work. It, obviously, they spent a lot of money on it, but it just looked like a big puppet. It wasn't scary. It wasn't, you know... So, like, a lot of people, now, I think um, the reason he wrote a bear into the play is because there was a bear baiting um, theater next to the Globe, and there probably was an old bear over there, and they could just go over and say, I want to borrow your bear for today's performance, and they would say, okay, and that bear was like, oh, I'm used to being on stage, and he would just walk across <laughs> the stage. Um, so they had a real bear. So that's like an event. Derek uh, McNish told me that he, that King James kept a menagerie and um, they think that maybe there were some old bears in that menagerie that they could borrow and use in Winter's Tale. And he was the king during the time of Winter's Tale because it's very late in Shakespeare. So that could be the, that could be the case as well. Um, we, we did the play. When I acted the play in Vermont, they had a guy in a bear costume walking across the stage. And, of course, that got a big laugh. Now, some editors say that's purposeful, that you want it to get a big laugh because this is where the play turns from tragedy to comedy. But I think that scene with the bear should be tragic because Antigonus is a character we care about and he gets eaten by that bear. And then, and then as soon as he is eaten, Clown is saying things like, oh yeah, he's still, that bear is still chewing on a shoulder bone, I think, and it starts getting laughs. But I think the moment of the bear shouldn't be. So we all put our heads together in that production that I directed not so long ago. And I said, shall we try to use a projection should we try to use a film of a bear? Um, and they all agreed, get, yes, they would use a film of a bear. So we had this video that projected on uh, one of the walls of a bear that was like 20 feet tall. And we had the sound department come up with a very terrifying roar. And so the bear just came up out of the ground and was there and Antigonus ran and then 
and then the bear faded. I mean, the bear left the same direction that Antigonus left in. Um, we didn't actually see him get eaten, but um, I, I think that version worked pretty well. Now, I just saw King Kong last year on Broadway, you know, and I have to tell you, that puppet made me think of this bear. That puppet was so amazing. Um, it, the puppet, which was 20 feet tall and run by 12 different people, as you, and you could see a lot of them, but it was so moving. I, I have no, I, I was astounded. It's like if you saw Warhorse, the puppetry in that was so moving. You know, you start weeping looking at this puppet. So I love puppets, <laughs> but um, you have to have, a, puppets are hard. Puppets are hard. And a puppet of a bear big enough to eat Antigonus is really hard. So, so we used a, a projection and it worked, I think, very well. Okay, we have one last question for you. If you could have dinner with any character from The Winter's Tale, who would it be? Oh, wow. <laughs> That's a wonderful question. I want to have dinner with Clown. <laughs> <laughs> I just do. I love that guy. He is so, like, he's so vulnerable and sweet and and not, you know, he has no agenda whatsoever. Um and therefore, he gets into lots of trouble, but Shakespeare makes sure he ends up well. So I think I'd love to have dinner with Clown. Yeah. Well, thank you for joining us, Gus. You're welcome. Um, is there anything else you'd like to add, like any shows coming up we should know about? Well, I, I'm hoping you're going to um, say something about Twelfth Night somewhere. Yes. Because that opens on the 8th of November and mm -hmm. runs for two weeks. And I think it's going to be an, an awfully nice show in the arena. Um, I'm very impressed by the um, talents. And, um, and then I go up to New Hampshire. I'm going to be directing Christmas Tuna at the Peterborough Players, which will run the first two weeks of December. And then in a completely different vein, I'm directing Gordon Clapp, who you might remember from NYPD Blue. He played... Medavoy, who's the little red-headed detective who was uh, my favorite character on that mm -hmm. show. He does. He, he and I have been working on a Robert Frost uh, evening, which we're going to be doing in New Hampshire at the Players also in the uh, first two weeks of February. And then apparently, I've just been offered a job. I'm going to be playing Leonard Bernstein in a play called Last Call in New York. It's about a, an evening that Bernstein plays with... Uh, spent with Herbert von Karajan in Vienna uh, when they were both still alive. Um, and that's going to run the last week of May, first week of June, and then I have to go up to Peterborough. So it's just a limited run. But Thank you, Gus, and thank you for listening to Syllable of Recorded Time. Don't miss Michigan State University's production of Twelfth Night running November 8th to 17th. For more information about this and other exciting events, please visit Michigan State University's Department of Theater at theater.msu.edu. This is Derek McNish. Your host is Heidi Covinia. Our guest today was Gus Kaikonen. The music was composed by Mason Menzel. Our audio engineer was Daniel Trago. Thank you to Daniel Trago and to Michigan State University's College of Arts and Letters for producing this podcast.